welcome to Coming Up for Air, the Allies in Recovery podcast, with hosts Laurie McDougall, Kayla Solomon, and Dominique Simone Levine. Okay, ladies, so today's topic, our discussion is going to be on feeling like when you're implementing craft, you have to be perfect and you have to be perfect all the time. I can tell you right now, I would not have done very well if I had to be perfect when I was implementing craft. And in fact, years later of implementing it, I mean, I'm still doing it with my loved one. And by the way, not just with my loved one with SUD, I'm doing it across the board, you know, with colleagues, with other family members. But if I had to be perfect, I would probably, I probably would have driven myself into the ground and just gotten sicker and sicker and sicker, to be honest with you, mentally. I think a lot of family members, I hear about this a lot, actually, parents or partners will say things like, I was probably wrong. I probably did the wrong thing. I didn't, you know, I wasn't good at this. I didn't do that. And I'm like, you know what? You tried. That's all you need to do. You tried. So can you talk on this? Both of you, Kayla, Dominique, please talk on this, this feeling like you've got to do it perfect every time, all the time, and almost as if you try it, it doesn't go well, you've missed it for life. It's interesting because I think I think it was Malcolm Gladwell that wrote, I can't remember the name of the book, but he talked about the way you become really good at something is you need 10,000 hours. And that if you look at the people who are experts in their field, it's that they put in 10,000 hours of everything. I, I actually thought about that. I'm like, that's a lot of hours. <laughs> but I think if you could have that frame of 10,000 hours and good luck trying to figure out how many years that is, if you're doing it every hour, every day, continuously and that's not how any of this works so it basically extends it out to possibly several decades and if you think about that frame of you're not going to be great at anything until you get 10,000 hours I think it could allow for some compassion my belief is that nothing worth doing is something that you could do right immediately because what's the point if you try something once and you're great at it then I personally think that's kind of boring and not satisfying. It's like, oh, great. And who the heck is going to do that anyway? But in this case, not only is it because it's something that you're going to engage in, but there's other people involved and their reactions, there's no way to be perfect at this because there's like this wild card that you're dealing with. And it's kind of like so many people like, oh, I listened to the active listening thing and it doesn't work with my loved one. Of course it doesn't. The point is that we're giving you skill sets here and all of it is about trying and seeing what works and trying and getting better at it and trying and failing and making mistakes. And in my life, the things that help me the most are my mistakes. When I get things wrong, it goes in in a different way. It's like, oh, oh, <laughs> because to, usually it's, I think of this with, you know, everybody who knows me knows that I'm technologically impaired. Like if there's a problem, I just start pressing buttons and then sometimes it works, but I have no idea what happened. I don't know how I got there. It's an accident usually. And that's how I feel about when I do things well in life. Like it happened, but I don't know what I did. It just, but when I make a mistake, there's this, spotlight on me, which is like, oh, that was interesting. That did not go very well. Oh, I know that didn't work. 
And then I have a chance to try it again with that awareness of what didn't work so that I could try something different. And again, the next one might not work either, but I'm getting this, and you know my my obsession with the word data, this database of things that I could try that work a little bit, that don't work, and I get to tweak it. And then at some point, it becomes something that's actually very useful, but it's a process that takes a while, takes trial and error. And then even when it works, it doesn't work all the time. So then I have to try something else. And let's keep in mind that with craft too, what we usually ask is that you make very small incremental changes. Yes, there are crises. Yes, you've got, there's homelessness. There are urgent decisions that need to be made. But the work of craft is very incremental, very small. And if you have perfectionism in your soul, you are going to suffer with this because you're not going to know, as both Kayla and Lori are saying, you've got way too much out of your control here. You have some control over yourself, but the vast majority of what's going on right now is outside of your control. And so it's really important that you don't beat yourself up if you feel that it wasn't perfection. And I've been working with freelance people for 20 years on Allies in Recovery, and I like perfectionists. I say, I, you know, when I find a perfectionist, I know I'm going to get something. But it is exhausting to be a perfectionist, and it's not a very satisfying sort of stance to have. The other thing I would bring up here is that even though it's incremental and small, there are family members who are going to think that what they do next is life or death. Right. So they're going to put that kind of importance on it. You know, I don't feel well if I don't go see her this weekend. I really don't want to. I'm very tired. But if I don't go, she may use. Hmm? I mean, that's a very typical comment that you'll hear in our groups. And that is because you are so tied. You are the person that knows your loved one best. You also have the most fear, the most love, the most to lose. It's a very frightening environment to to live in but you have to be easy on yourself you have to be willing to make little mistakes you can't buy into everything you do or don't do as a life or death issue you can't it's paralyzing you have to trial it you have to get in there you have to you're going to lean in right we want you to lean in i had a a bureaucrat at, at a state recently said but we just meet people where they are i said well we don't i mean We have a direction we want you to go in, and we're going to do it with the very best behavioral skills and expert help that we can give you. But we are pushing you a direction in craft. We are pushing you, the family member, to open the doors to recovery, to treatment, to a, a more safe environment, to an understanding of addiction. All of that is going to help a great deal. I would say we are meeting people where they're at we're meeting people where they're at, but with a goal in mind of moving people into a more positive direction, because we are, we're, we're meeting our loved ones where they're at. And like Kayla and Dominique have said, but collecting data and not respond, we're responding differently. So we end up with different results. I think it's really important what Dominique said as a family member that has experienced just what she's talking about my decision on what I'm going to do in this particular moment, in this particular situation, could have the damning or dire results of my loved one ending up in death. It is a reality when we're talking about substance use disorder. And yes, it is paralyzing. 
And it is going to make, you know, we are going to make decisions based on that. But I often think if that's where you're at in a particular situation, then maybe you don't change this situation. You look for something smaller. Like Dominique has said in the past, baby steps. So maybe this particular situation, making this decision right now is way to your safety, your loved one's safety, your sanity is on the line. So instead of doing that, find where it is, whatever boundary you're going to do or whatever action step you're going to take, find something smaller, something that isn't as paralyzing. And that's where you want to affect change. That's where you want to go. And I think it's really important to understand that it's through these tiny little baby steps that you can slowly move yourself to where you can make decisions in the future on bigger, more paralyzing issues. You can slowly move yourself there. But I think we're also looking at this bigger dynamic. And it's interesting listening to how you said that, because I was thinking that part of the issue with family members is we think that we're superheroes, you know, that we're going to swoop in and save somebody's life, literally, you know, because if we're talking life and death, then the presumption is that we're going to do enough or know enough to be able to save their lives. That is the literal translation of if I don't do this or if I do this, the person's going to die if I'm not on top of it. And I think what we really need to do is right-size ourselves, which is what I'm hearing you say, Lori. It's like, this is not about rescuing or preventing a catastrophe because we don't have that much control most of the time. But if we could do tiny little shifts, then that's actually the part that's the most powerful. Because if you're worried all the time about saving somebody's life, then you're in this rescuer position and you're taking more responsibility for that person's life than they are. And that's the not right-sized part of this. Well, I do think that there are times when we can save our, our loved one's lives. And I think that I have. I think that there are moments and times where I could have made a decision that I can almost, I'm not even going to say almost, I'm going to say I'm, I can guarantee you it would have ended up in the death of my loved one. I absolutely believe that. I believe that I have saved his life. And what I'm saying is, is that when I'm in a situation like that, I'm going to do whatever I have to do to keep everybody safe. And I'm going to look to something smaller to start to affect change of ending the use or better health and wellness, or that it's just this particular thing is I'm in a position where I'm going to be traumatized. I would never forgive myself if the dire results happened. And so instead of focusing on that particular moment as this is where I need to make change and applying that pressure to myself, I'm going to find some place, some other area that I can go ahead and make change and I can do it in a way that I'm not being traumatized. Give an example of that, Lori, you know, because clearly like if somebody's overdosing, you're stepping in, there's no question about that. If you assume that they're overdosing. That is actually not what I'm talking about. It's more when they're far away from you and there's not that much control that you have. That's what I'm talking about. Yeah. I guess we're talking about the same thing. Okay. I'm saying it's in the moments when I'm not going to be traumatized or in those moments, those smaller moments when I'm like, okay, 
I'm not in a real dire situation right now, I can affect change. Let me try and think. Dominique, you go and say what you need to say, because I got to come up with an example. So, you know, we started by saying we swoop in as superheroes. And I would just like to take the position of the family member who's swooping in and say they do it reluctantly. They are tired of doing it. They don't want to do it. But we have a structural problem in this country in which family members don't get any support, any training, any resources, no case management help. If you felt supported, you wouldn't be swooping in, but you are most likely feeling pretty isolated with this situation. Your touch points with the treatment system and other people that you've been in contact with may be a little helpful, but it's you're still lost, it's still complicated. You really, as a family member, deserve, and at this point, there's no excuse for not providing the training and resourcing of families like we do. And we are the exception. There is no money out there that I'm seeing in opioid settlement dollars for training families. You guys are out on your own. You do have to swoop in. You are tired, but you do feel like a superhero because there's nobody else around to pick up any of it. And we're here to stop that. We're here to make that community. We're here to give you the training and the resources so that you understand what you can do. And it's just, I am so unhappy and just despairing in how I'm seeing the family be omitted. If you look at the New York Times, like two weeks ago, 48 millions suffer from addiction. Here's what help they could have. No mention of the family is helpful. No mention of the four to one ratio of family members to the person with addiction who also have suffering and need around addiction, like the trainings that we do. So don't let us say you're superheroes because you're so inclined. We realize you're very tired of being superheroes. I think what Kayla's talking about, and I think what I'm talking about when we talk about there's like these bigger paralyzing kind of things that you can be facing that are absolutely real. Yep. In this moment. And I have been in those situations where it's like, I could do something and I know it's going to end up in dire, really disastrous results. And so I back down, but then there are other times when it could end up, maybe it's going to, but maybe it's not. And I'm just trying to think of things like, uh, well, if I say that, then they're going to get mad at me. And if I say something like, well, you know what, in order for you to come and live here, this is what I need. I need to know that you're not going to be behind a locked door. I need to know that you're going to go to counseling. I need to know that you're going to stay on your meds and be consistent and go consistently to your counselor's meetings. Those are the things I need. And then your loved one says, well, I'm not doing that. I'm not. Then you being ready to hold on, toe the line and being able to say, well, you know what? When you are ready for those things, you can come and you can live here. But right now, these are the things that I need and I'll be here and I'll wait until you're ready. But where are you going to go in the meantime? Can I offer maybe to help you get into a recovery home? Do you want to go into a residential treatment program? It's that where I know I'm probably going to get a no, and I know that they're probably going to 
get really angry at me and maybe go and use, but I'm still going to hold the line and I'm going to wait, I'm going to wait, and I'm going to wait for them to come back. But those are the situations much smaller than maybe they're standing in front of you and they're like, no, I'm going to go and do something absolutely horrible right now if I can't have this or just trying to think of like really dire situations. Maybe I'm going to use right now in this moment. You don't understand. I'm going to go and do whatever I can. Okay. Okay. I'm going to back down. We can talk about it tomorrow. Like I'm not going to, I'm not going to force you into any kind of a dire situation. I'm going to back down. I'm going to wait. Let's talk about it tomorrow. And I'm going to make sure that everybody's safe in this moment. We always add to that. Give them some time to think about what you said. Give them a week quiet down, just let it simmer and see if they don't come back and talk to you about it. And I also think that what we're talking about today, there's a big piece that I think that family members have to think about. When you start implementing particular skills, if you don't know what it is, what it means for something to work, like what is the goal behind that, then you are destined to think that whatever skill you put in place didn't work is disastrous. And what I mean by that is Kayla talked earlier about reflective listening and how people will try reflective listening and they almost everybody comes back. This is not, this is not, you know, one or two people. This is almost everybody tries reflective listening and comes back and says it doesn't work. And my question to those people are, one, what did you think it was going to do? Did you even think about what you thought it was going to do? Because you probably didn't. And if you just kind of took it for granted, let's think about what did you think it was going to do? Did you think your loved one was going to respond positively back to you and it was going to just unfold in a particular way? Then that may be the problem, right? How you're looking at reflective listening. And my other question to you is, did you listen? Because if you listened, then it worked because it's all it's intended to do. You know, as the person who's often teaching this, what's fascinating to me is that everybody sounds very mechanical when they first start it, which is true of everything that we just start to learn. We do the basics and it sounds really clipped or formulaic and people are like, what the hell are you doing? And that's why we ask you to practice, which brings us back to the beginning of this, is you're not gonna be great at this. And what makes me really good at reflective listening now is it's so unconscious for me that I could pull out any part of it when I need to. And I'm I'm watching the response to my reflective listening and I'll often drop pieces of it and do it a slightly different way. So like yesterday in the group, what we were talking about is, you know, oh, I tried listening, but then people don't do the piece that I find the most important, which is the validation piece, which I will often not do the reflective listening. And I'll just say, well, it makes sense to me that you would feel this and this and this and this. And people know I heard them because I'm reflecting back what they said, but I'm doing it in the form of validation, which is telling them about how what they said to me makes sense to me, even if I don't agree with them, but what they're saying makes sense. But the only reason I could do that is I practice it all the time. And so I could take it apart and use the part that I think is the most helpful at that moment. And that's the point of practicing something is you want it to become so familiar that it's unconscious and then your system knows what part of it can work best. And you don't have to do it, the you know, the entire format. And that's true of all the skills that we're talking about. 
you know, setting boundaries. It's not like you have to have big statements or global propositions with people. It's just like, no, I'm not really interested in doing that. That's a boundary as opposed to often we're talking about, well, if you do this, then this is what's going to happen. No, you get to say, no, I'm not interested in doing that and walk away. Once you get clear about boundaries, then it becomes this small microscopic statement or behavior that you're doing that's unnoticeable to the other person because it's so subtle, but it's because you have it in your system as a tool. And by the way, I just want to do a little shout out to DBT, which is Dialectical Behavioral Therapy, which is basically a therapy that offers a, a skill set. And again, they are practicing it. When you're taking DBT classes and now they're, they have them online, and the reason I'm saying this uh, is I've had two clients recently that both had ongoing depression and anxiety, and they signed up for a Zoom DBT class. And I am astonished at the level of change that I'm seeing. And I'm not suggesting it just for your loved one. I'm talking if you're struggling, think about signing up for a Zoom DBT skills group because then you're working on yourself. I might do that. You quote Kayla from years back, like everybody over the age of two should have some DBT. I agree with that. Yes. It's like it should be taught in kindergarten, but it's not. And basically what we're talking about is how to deal with human beings, how to deal with reactivity, how to be mindful. On yourself down. Yes. You're basically working on developing a skill set to moving through things. And if you don't want to take the classes, there's the DBT book by Marsha Linehan, who created this, and that's a workbook. If you're one of those people that can motivate yourself and you know do the worksheets on your own, good for you. If not, there's DBT groups going on all over the country and possibly all over the world that you could do through Zoom. I feel terrible as a therapist saying this because I'm not a DBT therapist, but people that I've been working with for years then take these DBT skills group I have never witnessed so much change so quickly in people. Like, I like to say this because there are so many books that I've read self-help and I don't know if anybody else is, but I'm like, oh, my partner could use this or my kid could use this or whatever. <laughs> I'm not saying this, that you're going to refer your loved one to DBT. I'm thinking if you're struggling, it's possibly a really good tool set for you to get involved with. And I'm not getting paid by them, just so you know. <laughs> this is not a paid endorsement. <laughs> Okay, Caleb, why don't you just kind of wrap it up, give us a quick summary, and we'll be back next week. So our topic today was trying to move off of the perfection track and really looking at changing as an incremental process, allowing yourself to make mistakes, practicing something to the point where you actually could see what works and that it becomes such an unconscious tool for yourself that you could take out pieces of it whenever you want. And that's going to involve patience and compassion and ongoing practice and trial and error. And that's part of this process. And it's a gift. And if you could do that with this kind of lovely, like, oh, I'm trying something new. Of course, I'm not good at this. Then that will go a long way. You don't want to be great at something to begin with. That's just creepy, if you ask me. You want to really be willing to have beginner's mind and try something and fail and learning through the mistakes. And there, and to me, mistakes are just opportunity to get better at something. Awesome. Okay. Thank you, ladies. Yeah. Talk to you next week. Bye. Thanks for listening. We hope this episode of Coming Up for Air spoke to you. If you're listening in today on a podcast platform that isn't the Allies member site, 
please take a moment to give us a five-star rating. This helps others find the show more easily. If you have a suggestion for a new topic or a guest for the show, please reach out through the Contact Us form on alliesinrecovery.net. Special thanks to our hosts, our guests, and our production team.